0: When I was walking up here I heard uh, some sound, sounded like somebody banging on a metal garbage can. Uh, Did you hear that? And and you know what it was? It was the the turkeys uh, banging on a uh, very beautiful, shiny, new Dodge Dart. So I'm mentioning that because uh, I've never seen the turkeys do anything like that before. I I glanced over, and it didn't look like they had damaged the car. But the way it sounded, you you know, it looked like they were really going to damage the car. So, uh, no, this is serious. I think that I I yelled at them. It was a black, shiny black, kind of nice-looking, looked pretty new, well-taken-care-of car. So... uh, no, but this could be a problem. So, <laughs> the, the, for the Spirit Rock people, uh, you have to train the turkeys out of that behavior. I yelled at them and tried to. They went away, but I, I didn't have a lot of confidence that they were going to not come back and do it again. <laughs> so, uh, a bunch of marauding, destructive turkeys would be bad news, right, for what Spirit Rock. Not you. <laughs> the turkeys, yeah anyway uh, it's it's uh, a disturbing problem, so I want to talk about uh, something about Buddhism seems appropriate right uh, so buddha the Buddha's main concern was was suffering the Buddha was not all that concern particularly about the nature of the universe or about truth but about suffering I think everybody here knows the story of the Buddha's leaving home driven by concern for suffering and about his dramatic awakening under the Bodhi tree we have a, you know, in Zen there's an annual retreat that happens. Uh, We we celebrate Buddha's Awakening on December 8th, and there's always an annual retreat. And we have ours in Mexico with our Mexican Sangha. Uh, We have a beautiful place where we have our retreats there on the beach, 70 miles north of Puerto Vallarta in Mexico. And it's a retreat that celebrates the Buddha's enlightenment, so at that retreat I always tell the story of the Buddha's Awakening under the Bodhi tree with full elaboration. And it builds up, you know, every day it gets more and more exciting. And then at the very end he gets awakened and we get very charged up about this. And we have a big ceremony at the end to celebrate our collective awakening. And it's a really raucous, fun, outrageous ceremony, as Bob can tell you. Bob has been there. He's smiling. He knows. We we dance and sing and march around and throw flowers at one another... It goes on and on and on. It's, it's really wonderful. So, yes, uh, this is a dramatic thing, the Buddha's awakening. But the older I get and the longer I continue with my practice, the more sure I am that maybe the Buddha's story wasn't really that dramatic. The stories that we have uh, in, the, in the texts that, that are, have been handed down to us are, are legendary stories, mythical stories, and we do need legends and we do need myths and we do need stories, but probably in real life, I'm betting that the Buddha was constantly working on his practice all the time from the day he began until the day he passed constantly trying to understand a little bit more and, and and every day understanding a little bit more every day awakening a little bit more not just once all of a sudden but every day a little bit more and yeah maybe he did have one special night of transcendence or maybe several special nights of transcendence that were collapsed together to make it dramatic as one night in the story. But I think even after these nights or these days of transcendence, he just kept on going because there's always more. You don't come to the end of this. And since from the beginning he was intent on reducing suffering, not just for himself but for everyone, He was really interested in how to share his practice. And he did that for 45 years. From the mythical day of his awakening till the end of his life on this earth, he pretty much didn't take any days off. There were no weekends. Uh, He just uh, traveled and taught and shared his life with other people. And he probably learned from seeing how the practice and the teaching appeared in the lives of others who were different from him, whose experience of life was different from his. And little by little, he was trying to figure out how to explain and guide people so that they too could find the happiness and the release that he was finding for himself a little bit more every day in his own practice, and I think he left this world uh, pretty happy uh, with his life so that's why he was always thinking about suffering, about how we suffer how does suffering come about and how can you relieve it and as he thought about this uh, over many years, he realized that one of the most important acupressure points in the creation of suffering uh, is the self. Our assumptions about and our hidden views about ourselves, who we think we are, how, how we think we are. So he talked a lot about the self. What is the self? How does it arise? And how does self, as we understand it, condition our suffering. So he noticed, first of all, the most obvious thing, which is that my suffering depends on myself, right? If I don't cling to myself, there is no suffering for me. If I'm not there in the way I think I'm there, then my suffering is also not there. And he saw that the whole way that suffering uh, is formed in my psyche, in my heart. Suffering constellates around myself. It's true for all of us. I assume myself. I inherit it from the world around me, from all the responses that I've ever received in my life. And myself has needs and wants. And myself is pretty fragile compared to the many other selves and to the rest of the world. So myself must constantly defend itself. And it has to constantly be on guard. And then I'm peering out at the big world through these little eye holes and I see lots of things out there that I like and that I want and wish I had, and lots of things that look to me like a threat or a, or a dishonor to me. If myself's body is hurt or somehow not looking too good, this is bad for me. This is a problem I have to somehow fix. I'm constantly working to promote promote, and protect myself. And basically, this is an exhausting and fundamentally losing battle. I can't win this battle, and I'm really getting tired. Never mind about Sickness, old age, and death, and stuff like that. Every single day of my life, there are many frustrations, many, many underlying anxieties, even terrors that visit me in the night that I manage to forget about in the waking hours. I can even, in my desire to be the best possible self that I can be. I can even block myself from myself. I can even alienate myself from myself so that I can become a basically very unhappy person. And in my unhappiness, make the people around me also unhappy because I'm crabby and not in a good mood. In the meantime, they've got the same problem, and they're doing the same thing to me and everybody else around them, and it's a kind of a mess. So the Buddha said, yes, let's look into this question. Uh, what is the self? What is it really? How does it function? Let's investigate. That was his spirit. And fortunately, the Buddha came from a culture in which mindfulness... And meditation were practices that already existed from time immemorial. This is what sages did. They practiced meditation. They practiced mindfulness. So naturally the Buddha used meditation and mindfulness to investigate uh, the nature of the self. Because uh, mindfulness, meditation, creates more space inside. So... You can move around inside better and you can see more. So the Buddha said, well, let's see what kinds of experiences we're actually having all the time. And let's see if in those experiences we can find somewhere in there uh, an actual self. In other words, let's see how accurate to our actual experience the assumption of self as we understand it and live it, actually is. So the Buddha was the first phenomenologist. He didn't really start off with a theory or a belief. He started off with the idea of investigating, looking very, very closely at our experience. What's going on here? Let's look with subtle detail. So, what is going on? Well, first of all, the most obvious thing one notices is that there's a body. We have a body. There's physical matter. There's stuff. What is stuff? The Buddha defined matter, physical matter, the body, as something like this that which can be broken or hurt. That's the definition of the body, of any physical matter. Because uh, the Buddha noticed something very obvious, which is that only material things can be broken or hurt. Non-material things cannot be broken or hurt. Non-material things appear and disappear, but nothing can hurt them. So a thought might hurt you, but the thought itself cannot be hurt. Right? The thought comes and it goes. You can't take a thought and like stomp on it or like light a match to it and set it on fire. It's impossible. Or an emotion or an image in the mind. Only the body is subject to that kind of hurt. Matter, the material, can be broken. That's its nature. What is material is what is subject to being broken. So the Buddha noticed that this material basis is the first fundamental of our experience. And then built on that basis, there's a swirl of non-material experience. Sensations, which can be bodily sensations or deep emotional sensations, Uh, Perceptions, experiences like seeing, hearing, and so on, which show us a world and show us others. And then, based on all these feelings and perceptions, there can be volition, desire, attitude, mood, and on and on. There's a kind of a climate that builds up based on these experiences inside. And the closer you look, the more there is going on inside. Just to perceive something, a simple act of perception, and all the inner stirrings that go with even a simple perception... You like it, you don't like it, you find it threatening or somehow alluring. You fit it into a whole framework based on innumerable past experiences so that every perception fits into a world that we have made out of past perceptions and innumerable past experiences and our various reactions to words and Deeds of others over time. Every perception fits into that whole framework and evokes it. Mostly we don't notice any of this or think about it. But when we stop and really look, as the Buddha did with mindfulness, we see all of this. And in all of it, the Buddha said, you don't find anything other than this stuff, anything else that you could call a self. So it turns out that what we experience as being ourself is actually a kind of extremely crude and extremely destructive shorthand for organizing experience, and not a very good one at all. And the way, the particular way that the self organizes experience sets us up to receive experience in a way that pretty much guarantees that we're going to suffer most of the time. So the Buddha said, there's got to be a better way of looking at this a better way that would account for the fullness of our actual experience but without resorting to this sort of crude shorthand of self. So he said, let's try this. Experience is divided into five heaps, forms, or categories. Matter, the body, and the things in the physical world is one. Sensations, physical sensations and psychological sensations is another. Perceptions, impulses or volitions. In the field of awareness, consciousness, that makes all the other four kinds of experiences cognizable for us. You notice that in these five categories, there is no category called thought, which might seem strange, because thought is such an important part of our human experience. How come Buddha didn't have a category called thought. And the reason for that is that although the Buddha realized that thinking is different from perceiving, actually it's quite similar to perceiving. You see a tree with eye and eye consciousness. An eye alone doesn't see a tree. If you had an eye sitting on a table this eye is not seeing a tree unless it's connected to a whole Consciousness, right? So it's the eye and the eye consciousness that cognize a tree. And similarly, it's the mind and mind consciousness that cognizes a thought. So the Buddha thought of the mind as a kind of sense organ, like the eye or the ear. And a thought is a non material thing, but so is a tree, because the tree that we experience exists in our minds even though it has a physical basis outside of our minds. So for the Buddha, thinking is a kind of species of perception. This might sound a little bit like technical and irrelevant, but actually it's really relevant and really important to think of it like this. It's really actually quite revolutionary if you, if you think of the implications of this revolutionary for our lives and for our practice. Because to us, organizing ourselves around me and myself, thinking is quite different from seeing or hearing. It's categorically different. In the Western tradition, thinking is exactly associated with me and myself and thinking is the boss of everything else in our lives, right? Thinking is associated with the mind, which is associated with spirit and with self. And the spirit and the mind and the self are the boss of the body and mere physical reality. We have a whole world based on this idea, right? We are the boss of physical reality. It serves us and the mind can manipulate it. But the trouble with this, although it works pretty well in the physical world, the trouble with this in the inner world is that it brings mind and body into exile from one another. And the Buddha realized that when the body and mind are in exile from one another, there's pain right away, immediately. Pain is there. Because there can't be a sense of wholeness. There can't be a sense of being at home. Being embedded in life, you're essentially myself, my mind, my thoughts are essentially in exile, divorced from my body. The earth mind is wandering endlessly in the desert of its terrible aloneness. So the Buddha saw, this, this is not going to work out. We have to unify mind and body as one life, one experience. And, and really, when you think about what we're doing in meditation, I think too many people think of meditation as the mind analyzing the mind to fix things with the mind. But actually, really and truly in meditation, we're unifying body and mind. That's what we're doing. Literally, we're bringing the mind to the body, to the posture of sitting, to the breathing, to the sensations in the body. We're uniting the mind with the body. We're bringing the mind home. We're grounding the mind. And there's a tremendous strength and a sanity in just that. already just sitting and making the effort to unify body and mind, we are healing ourselves. So this was a fantastic discovery of the Buddha. You really have to give the Buddha credit for seeing something like this that is right under our noses, right? And we would never have found it if the Buddha hadn't noticed it. This means that thinking is not ours. And thinking is not us. It's exactly like a tree that appears in front of your eyes because of conditions in the world. Today I was driving in Mill Valley, you know, up in the Redwoods behind Old Mill Park. Redwood trees are f- fabulous. I didn't put those redwood trees there, they weren't there because I willed them there. I saw redwood trees. It had nothing to do with my making them be there. I saw them because conditions in the world caused them to appear in my mind. Thoughts are not our fault. Thoughts don't belong to us or define us. They are natural phenomena. And when we ground them in the body and in presence, we can find some liberation within our own thoughts. Thoughts appear in the mind because of conditions in the world from the past, just like redwood trees appeared in my mind because of conditions in the world. Also, you might have noticed that in these five categories of experience that the Buddha delineated as our human experience, there is no category that corresponds to what we would call memory. Even though, again, we would say, wow, memory is a really important part of being myself. But the Buddha didn't define a category called memory. Memory. Because memory already implies and carries with it a sense of a separate alienated self. And there's always suffering in a separate alienated self. This happened to me some time ago, and this is me, this is my experience. That's why I'm like this now, because of what happened then, which can't be undone, we think, right? Also, the usual idea of memory involves incorrect and unfounded assumptions about time which we also think we understand without even knowing what it it is we understand. That's what we're going to talk about later uh, later in the summer, in the day long. What is time? So the Buddha realized that already when we think we have memory in the usual way that we understand memory, we're already in trouble. Basic things about the way we look at the world bring us serious trouble and we don't even see it. So the Buddha contrived memory differently, but that's another story. The important point here is that the Buddha devised these five categories of experience as an alternative to the usual way we organize experience around self. And you might say, well, why five? Maybe there, maybe there are really seven or eight or ten. There could be. Maybe there are seven or eight or ten. But the Buddha left it at five. When we take these five categories of experience and think of them as me, when we take them personally, when we feel like we are in possession of them and they define us, then we are inevitably in trouble. So there's a little uh, sutta about this in the canon. This is uh, a time soon after the Buddha's awakening. You remember there were five ascetics who were practicing with him. They were doing extreme asceticism and then the Buddha gave up asceticism And the ascetics thought he was wimpy. So they got mad at him and went away. But then he met them later on. And he said this to them. The body is not the self. If it were the self, it would not get sick. You could tell your body, be like that. Don't be like this. You know, like when you're sick, you could just say, cut it out. Body you're me. I don't want to be sick. Stop. And it would stop. But no, the body will not stop, right? It won't listen to you. So it can't be you. Feelings are not the self. If they were, your feelings would never torment you. You could tell your feelings, be like this, don't be like that. But because they are not the self, they do torment you. You can't just tell your feelings, be this way, don't be that way. Perceptions are not the self. If they were, they would never trouble you. You could tell your perceptions, be like this or don't be like that. But because they're not self, they do trouble you. You can't tell them, be like this, don't be like that. Inclinations, volitions are not the self we think, wow, I made a decision. My volition. But no. If they were, they would never distress you. You could tell your impulses, be like this or don't be like that. But because they are not self, they do distress you. You can't tell them, be like this, don't be like that. This is more subtle, because we actually think that we run our impulses. But actually, our impulses run us. As anybody who has addiction issues, knows very well. We're all addicted and compelled by our impulses much more than we realize. Consciousness is not self. If it were, it would not disturb you. You could tell your consciousness be like this, don't be like that. But because it's not self, it does disturb you. You can't tell it, be like this, don't be like that. What do you think? He says to them. Are your body, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness permanent or impermanent? And they all agreed, impermanent. And does what is impermanent give rise to happiness or suffering? It gives rise to suffering, they said. Yeah, because what's impermanent, you can't hold on to it even for a second, right? And that's painful. You want to don't you? We all want to hold, like my life, I would like to hold on to my life, but I'm not going to be able to, right? I don't like that. Most of us really don't like that idea. My youth, can't hold on to my youth, already, too late, you know? I don't like it. So impermanence really is suffering. And so the Buddha said, well, does it make sense to think of something that is impermanent and fickle, that you can't hold on to, that you can't run, that you can't control, that gives you suffering? Does it make sense to think of all of that as this is mine, I am this, this is myself? They said, no, it really doesn't make any sense, does it? No, it doesn't make sense. Therefore, monks, he says to them, whether it be a past, present, or future body, one's own body or somebody else's body, a gross body or a subtle body like the body of a god or a sprite. An inferior body or a superior body. A distant body or a close body. Every body should be seen with true intelligence as it really is. This isn't mine. I'm not this. This isn't myself. And the same is true for every feeling, perception, inclination, or moment of consciousness. Everyone should be seen with true intelligence as it really is. This isn't mine. This is not me. This is not myself. Seeing things this way, the attentive, noble disciple disengages from the body, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, and consciousness, disengaging that disciple becomes dispassionate and through dispassion is freed and knows I'm free and understands. Birth is overcome and the good life has been lived. What is to be done has been done. There will be no more of this pain again. And that's what the Buddha said and, and, and these five ascetics. Immediately, were awakened, just hearing the Buddha said that. Which is a common thing that happens in the early suttas. The Buddha says something and people hear it and kaboom, they become like arhats. <laughs> Instantly. Isn't that wonderful? The Buddha must have had great powers. Or maybe if we were writing a story in... Contemporary terms, we might say. And when the Buddha said this, the five ascetics totally got it. (laughs) And because they got it, their lives were never the same after that. Which is what that amounts to, right? And it happens like this too. Even now, even nowadays, when we don't have the inspiring presence of the Buddha in our midst, even now, Sometimes people will hear something from the Dharma and they will say, that is true. I, I get that. That really is true. And now I can't really fool myself anymore the way I used to. Little by little we practice. Little by little our lives change. Our basic and fundamental attitude about who we think we are and what we think we're doing changes. Probably when you heard this sutra, I think, like most people, and you hear the uh, language of disengagement and dispassion, it doesn't sound optimal to us. Uh, There's the great Mahayana Buddhist sage Shantideva talks about the opposite of dispassion. He talks about pride and desire and passion for the good for practice so there are lots of ways to talk about practice many ways to think about practice and the Buddha was not concerned with finding the right way to think about practice he was simply concerned with finding a way to think about it that will help individual people to let go of their usual obsessions and in the case of the five ascetics that was a good way to talk about it for them Right They were ascetics, after all, so when they heard dispassion disengagement, they said, "Yeah, that's right." <laughs> uh, they say that the Buddha taught no self, but actually the Buddha did not teach no self. The Buddha was not actually concerned about whether or not there is or is not a self that 's like an abstract issue that the Buddha had really no interest in. And the teachings here are not about encouraging us to somehow not have a self or think we don't have a self or something like that. They're encouraging us to hold ourselves with maximum love and to see the truth about ourself that it isn't ours. That it's not what we are most fundamentally. We are all who we are for an important reason. Our goal here is not to erase that. It's to understand who we are and why. And to illustrate this point about how the Buddha was not teaching no self, here's another short quotation from a sutra. This is uh, He's talking to a, a, a person named Vajagota, Asks the Buddha, How is it, Master Gautama? Is there a self? And the Buddha didn't say anything. And then he said, So then, is there no self? And the Buddha didn't say anything. And so Vacha Gotra got disgusted and left because he wanted to know. So Ananda was there with the Buddha and Ananda said, what just happened there? And the Buddha said, well, if I had told him that there is no self, that would have been nihilistic. If I told him there is a self, that would have been eternalistic. To say there's a self or not a self are both these statements are exaggerations. The truth about who we are has nothing to do with either one of these two extremes. So, here's a Zen story uh, about the same issue. It's about my two favorite Zen masters, Dao and Yunyan, who, who were actually brothers, and they always talked about Dharma together. And they, had, uh, they were funny. One was an older brother and a younger brother, and they were always like older and younger brothers on each other's case. So here in this particular story, uh, Yunyan, who's the younger brother, is sick. In fact, probably he's on his deathbed. And so Dawu, after a, a lifetime of you know, being best friends and Dharma practitioners together, Dawu says to him, apart from this leaky boat, the human body, which perhaps is not going to be here much longer, in your case, Yunyan. Apart from this leaky boat, where will we meet? And Yunyan said, "We will meet at the place of no birth and death." And Dawu said, "Why don't you say we won't meet at the place that is not no birth and no death?" So this is the point of the self. This is the point of you being you and me being me and all of us being who we are. The point of our being who we are is not to isolate us and make us suffer but to provide what we need so that we can meet one another, to really meet one another in full loving kindness beyond what the ordinary self is capable of, this is why we have a self, and everybody knows this already, that's why everybody thinks that love is so great, hardly anybody you find will be against love, you know, I'm against it, I don't like it, it's a bad idea. You find very few, I mean you can find somebody, but very few people, whatever they believe about anything, whatever side of any issue they're on, they'll probably agree. Love is a good thing. Love is a great thing. Love is a basic thing about being human. I love love. It's wonderful. We're having a visit from our two-year-old granddaughter. and She says, I love you. I love you. Not that she knows what she's saying, but her parents taught her to say that I love you. (laughs) I love you. Everybody is yearning for love because we all know love is liberation. Love is liberation from exile. Love is liberation from the prison of our aloneness. Everybody understands this and everybody is looking for love but mostly we don't have a clue as to how to really find it, because we're too stuck on ourselves. And it's a brilliant thing, that despite this, every now and then, it happens anyway. Every now and then, we feel a moment of actual love. Every now and then, any one of us has the capacity to surpass ourselves. If we didn't have ourselves. If we weren't ourself, we could never meet. We could never transcend ourselves. We could never love. And this is why it's so vitally important for us to clarify who we really are and how we hold our sense of self so in this story that I just quoted for you, Da Wu is the older brother, and you know there are many stories about the two of them, and Da Wu is always the crusty you know, older brother who's always taking his younger brother to task as he does even here on his deathbed. He can't stop himself from, from doing it again. Yunyan is telling him, dear brother, yes it's true, I'm leaving soon but our being together as brothers this whole lifetime. It's beyond birth and death. Death can't end it. It's beyond me and you. It's perfect, and it's complete. He's expressing his loving confidence in his connection to his older brother. And it's true. Death doesn't end love, I think, We know this. Death doesn't bring an end to love. But Dawu can't resist. Why not say we won't meet where there isn't no birth and death? And this is the brilliant paradox of love, isn't it? When you think about it. Because when we really and truly meet one another in real love, it's beyond meeting. When the self fully surrenders itself in love, there isn't any meeting because there isn't any more two people. So what is there to meet? In other words, the deepest meeting is beyond meeting. That's what Dawu is indicating. This is why, really, and I'm lucky, you know, because I've been doing this practice uh, for 45 years, something like that. And i practice with people for decades and decades, right? And there are people that I practice with that I will never forget and never stop being close to. Sometimes I practice with someone and I don't see them for 20 years and then I see them and it's like I never was apart from them. Because in practice we are so unspeakably close to each other and yet at the same time we don't know one another at all like oh you're from minnesota i had no idea you're 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 a doctor i didn't know that and yet we're so close and and it's like that in love you know the lovers kind of disappear into one another and the only thing left is an unmistakable sense of belonging even though in some way we're always completely alone and yet every aloneness is all inclusive it's not exile it's not suffering it's an all inclusive sense of belonging So I mentioned a moment ago Shantideva and and his uh, he has a famous book about compassion. And in that book there's a chapter uh, on emptiness and and there's a dialogue in that chapter between a skeptic and the emptiness sage. And the skeptic says, well if there's no self, if the self is empty who are we going to have compassion for? Shanti Deva says, We'll have compassion for anyone projected through the delusion which is embraced for the sake of what has to be done. <laughs> That's an exact quote from the translation from the Sanskrit. We will be compassionate for anyone projected through the delusion which is embraced for the sake of of what has to be done. And what has to be done is love, compassion, caring for one another. And for that, we embrace delusion. So I'm sure that our goal in practice is not to get rid of delusion and to get the right point of view. We are delusion. Right? We are literally delusion. Our self is a big delusion, which we embrace. Not selfishly, not for the purpose of getting as much as we can get, but for the purpose of meeting one another in love. For caring for one another. And to me this is so important, especially nowadays in the world that we're living in when we see so much pain and so much anguish and we feel like the only choices are two, one really feel it and be overwhelmed by it or two, try our best to ignore it but there's a third choice we can weep over this sad world and we can work as hard as we can each one of us from whatever our position is To heal this world. Knowing that we embrace this whole delusion for the sake of what has to be done and that it's just right. It's just right. All these things are just as they must be to give us the opportunity to do what must be be done. And we take that opportunity with full enthusiasm and love. And yeah, plenty of tears because... There's a lot of sad stuff, but it's not overwhelming. So that's what I wanted to tell you tonight. Thank you for listening. We we have just a few minutes, maybe 10 minutes, maybe, at the most, uh, left. In case there are any comments or questions, I'd be happy to entertain a few for just a few minutes. And somebody said there are uh, mics around so that uh, if somebody does have something to say, a mic will come to you.
1: Um, so, I'm still trying to get my head wrapped around, you know, talking about those five elements, um, our perceptions and... Our body, etc., all up to consciousness. <clears throat> um, and I originally kind of assumed that all that stuff wasn't myself, except consciousness. Consciousness was. I thought that was the only thing that was left to make my entity something. So I guess I just I'm looking for more clarification on what is this right here mm-hmm. um, you know not using the word self or whatever but what is actually here if none of that's me is there anything that's me or if, am I just not anything
0: uh-huh. well uh, maybe the simplest thing to say is we don't know <laughs> I mean uh, yes really uh, so something is happening we, we know. We, some experiences are coming and going including the experience of me and my feelings about me and so on. Those things are actually happening. What we don't know is that we have organized them in a way that uh, we, we have defined them. We have circumscribed them. So it's better to just really literally say, I don't know. I don't know what thoughts are coming and going, feelings are coming and going, the body is changing, the consciousness is arising and passing away. I go to sleep at night, I'm not conscious. Next morning, lo and behold, I appear to be the same person I was when I went to sleep. How did that happen? I have no idea. I don't know. So I think really to just say to yourself, I don't know. I think that the, I really do think as I quoted you know the buddha was not saying it's this way it's that way it's not this way it's not that way he was saying just don't be so sure examine your honest, unexamined ideas and let them go
1: and don't know and just uh, experience what's happening if if i don't know what this is then what's the point of doing anything in life Say that again? If I don't know what this is, then what's the point of this doing anything in the world? Love is the point.
0: Connection and love and this journey that we're given that we are are cutting off and reducing because of our pre-existing ideas. That's why I don't know is not like, oh no, I don't know, I should be knowing. I don't know is joy. Right, I don't know, is liberated from my preconceptions. Not, what a pathetic thing, I don't know who I am. No, no. Wonderful not to know. We could say it a lot of other ways too, but that's one way to say it. Well, she's handing the mic to him, and then after him, then you and maybe we'll be done by then yeah. we do know more about ourselves than turkeys know about themselves the turkeys think oh. they, they're fascinated with their own reflection in the, in, the, in the car finish or in windows and they keep picking peck, at themselves their, 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 their image of themselves uh-huh. in, in the reflective don't we do the surface. same thing huh? <laughs> don't we do the same thing <laughs> do we do the same thing yeah. Oh. <laughs> we're we're all turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who isn't fascinated by their own image in a mirror, just like a turkey, right? <laughs>
1: I just, could you please repeat the quote one more time? Sorry, could you please just repeat the, the quote about our projection of our no, delusion. Oh, Shanti Davis quote. Yes, Shanti Davis. Uh,
0: who, who are we compassionate for? For anyone projected through the delusion, which is embraced for the sake of what has to be done that's who we're compassionate for well thanks everybody for coming and listening and and uh listen uh, just to be clear um <laughs> clear <laughs> uh I hope that you'll forget everything I have just said. (laughs) No, I mean that in the sense that, you know, I'm not presenting a lesson here, right? I'm not, my purpose in speaking to you is not to present a lesson. You don't have the right idea. Now I'm going to give you the right idea. Make sure you get it right. That's not what I'm trying to do at all. What I'm trying to do is sing a song for you. Sing a song that will uh, release to whatever extent possible in such a short amount of time the preconceptions that you've been holding on to. I'm really not offering better conceptions. I hope not. And if I have offered a conception that you can now have an improved conception that you can attach to and become miserable as a result of, then I've failed in my job. So don't worry about whether you understood what I said or what the Buddha says or anything like that. Never mind about that. Just go home and have a wonderful evening and forget the whole thing. And, and I hope to see you all again sometime. May, may we all live uh, to that day. Take care.
1: Thank you for listening.